Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. The Democrats obviously now have the White House in the form of Joe Biden. They also have the House and very, very narrowly the Senate. But there is one branch of the United States government which is firmly out of reach, the Supreme Court. There, conservatives are in the majority, six votes to three, partly because, as we all saw, Donald Trump got to fill three judicial posts, three top posts, on the Supreme Court. We all remember the hearings to Brett Kavanaugh, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Those big moments gave conservative judges a six to three majority. And it means, say some Democrats, that Joe Biden's room for manoeuvre is limited. And they want him to radically think about appointing extra judges to the Supreme Court so it could somehow dilute that current conservative majority. There are other reform ideas out there too, but all of this has got new urgency because just last week the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case which touches on perhaps one of the most divisive issues in American life, abortion. They've agreed to hear a case which could roll back the constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion guaranteed by the Roe v. Wade ruling some 50 years ago. And that's one reason why I'm so delighted to be speaking to our guest today, Christopher Kang. He's co-founder and chief counsel of Demand Justice, an advocacy group which urges the restoration of what it calls the ideological balance and legitimacy of the federal courts. Before that, though, Christopher Kang worked for seven years in the White House. He was deputy counsel to President Obama and served as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. So he sits absolutely in that place where he knows all about the campaign for judicial reform, but also how it looks when you're actually in the White House as a Democratic president. I began by asking Christopher Kang whether these questions that are in the air now about reforming the court were under discussion back then when he was in the White House with President Obama. You know, court reform is not something that we discussed during the Obama administration, um, notwithstanding the fact that it was a conservative Supreme Court with the 5-4 majority that had ruled in cases like Citizens United to upend campaign finance reform or in Shelby County versus Holder to strike down part of the Voting Rights Act. Um, court reform itself is a, something that Republicans have forced into the conversation by stealing a Supreme Court seat from President Obama, um, ramming through the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, 
and then pushing through Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation, you know, after 60 million votes had already been cast in the presidential election, watching Republicans so thoroughly politicize our Supreme Court, leading to this, you know, super majority of very conservative justices. I think that is why you're seeing the conversation pick up over the last several years, even though it hadn't been something that we had considered during the Obama administration. That, that's so interesting. I mean, two of the episodes you've recounted there happened outside after the Obama presidency, when, when and they happened when uh, Donald Trump was in the White House, Amy Coney Barrett and the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. The one that is different, and you only referred to it, uh, you know, in fleetingly there was the stealing of a seat. And that, that I think is the, well, you fill in for us what happened there and what change it had on your own thinking, what impact it had on your own thinking that episode. Bring us up to speed with that. After completing this exhaustive process, I've made my decision. I've selected a nominee who is widely recognized not only as one of America's sharpest legal minds. So in 2016, Justice Antonin Scalia, a very conservative Supreme Court justice, unexpectedly passed away. And President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, a highly respected uh, judge who has now since been confirmed as Joe Biden's attorney general. Uh, President Obama nominated Judge Garland to fill his vacancy. Uh, Judge Garland is somebody who had previously been recommended by Republican senators to sit on the Supreme Court. And so this is a nomination that President Obama thought would gain bipartisan support as it should. It is tempting to make this confirmation process simply an extension of our divided politics. But instead, Senate Republicans, led by leader uh, Mitch McConnell, refused to allow even a hearing for Judge Garland. So this is the first time since we started having hearings for Supreme Court nominations 100 years ago that the Senate refused to even allow him a hearing or a vote. They kept that seat open for more than a year, effectively changing the size of the Supreme Court from nine to eight, um, so that eventually uh, Donald Trump could fill a vacancy, which he did with Neil Gorsuch. And the argument they made at the time, Mitch McConnell and the others, was that it was wrong for such an important decision, presidential decision, to be taken in an election year. The American people may well elect a president who decides to nominate Judge Garland for Senate consideration. The next president may also nominate somebody very different. And then, as you say, they were nevertheless went ahead, contradicted that uh, principle, uh, in fact, a 180-degree handbrake turn on that principle because they went ahead with the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, not only in election year, but kind of in the election month. Judge Amy Coney Barrett of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit is a stellar nominee in every single respect. The argument they made was that in the Obama case, he, you know, the Merrick Garland case, you had a Democratic president and a Republican Senate, but it was completely different with Amy Coney Barrett because you then had a Republican president in Donald Trump and a Republican Senate, and therefore somehow it was okay. I never got that logic, but that was the argument they made at the time. Now, now, Christopher Kang, your your job was uh, partly, among other things, to oversee this election and vetting and confirmation of the president's choices to sit on the uh, on the federal bench, whether at whatever level. Uh, and I think you were involved in the confirmation of more than 220 uh, nominees. So you have real experience of this. But I wonder if part of this 
problem that is for progressives now, liberals and progressives, as they have only three of the nine seats on the Supreme Court. To what extent this is partly of their own making? And I'm thinking of just one very basic point, which is one of the vacancies Donald Trump got to fill was that of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we've talked about his choice just now of Amy Coney Barrett. And there would have been a way to avoid that, which is for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to have retired when there was Obama in the White House and there were Democrats uh, in charge in the Senate. Just tell us what you can about that, whether A, you now feel sad that she didn't step down then and B, whether you and, and, and the president you worked for did try ever so gently to suggest maybe it would be a good idea for her to step down when a Democrat might pick her replacement rather than a conservative like Donald Trump. Yes, I think that certainly looking back, um, and even at the time, uh, a lot of people thought that the prudent thing for Justice Ginsburg to do to ensure her legacy would have been to retire. I think this is the same conversation that a lot of progressives are having right now with respect to Justice Breyer, who is one of those three uh, Democratic appointed justices uh, on the Supreme Court. He's 82 years old. Um, he could retire, and 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 we believe he should retire now uh, and make way for the first Black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Um, but it's challenging because Supreme Court justices are um, are nominated right now for life, and they sort of their decision to when to retire is is completely up to them. And so um, I was not part of the decision making process uh, at the time with respect to whether or not to reach out to Justice Ginsburg. I, I understand that the White House chose at the time not to do that, but but I think certainly looking at the impact of what happened, um, we could be in a very different place. So now the court has agreed to take another look at that very issue, the core of Roe. And as you noted, the Mississippi law would ban nearly all abortions after 15 weeks. So the question is, can the states ban abortion before viability without violating the Constitution? But listen, we're talking about this now partly because of this case that the uh, Supreme Court has said it's going to hear. The Supreme Court's move very slowly. It's not going to happen, uh, you know, immediately. But just talk us through what this case is and why it's given new salience, new urgency to this entire otherwise potentially abstract question of Supreme Court reform. So I think that we're beginning to see what the impacts of a 6-3 Republican supermajority on the court could look like. Uh, for example, uh, this term, the court, court will hear cases regarding the Voting Rights Act and whether or not um, government-funded organizations should be allowed to discriminate between LGBTQ couples who are looking to foster children um, or the future of the Affordable Care Act. Like some of these cases already are before the court and will be decided within the next four or five weeks. Um, but now they're setting up for even a bigger bite at the conservative apple uh, next term. They've agreed to consider a case that could upend uh, state and local regulations prohibiting the concealed carry of firearms. Um, and in particular now, just recently, the Supreme Court said it will hear a case on whether or not Mississippi's abortion ban, which would prohibit any abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, or whether or not that can stand, which would completely upend the longstanding precedent established by Roe versus Wade. And so just let's focus on that one in particular. What's your read of the court? Obviously, we see the figure six to three. Is it your view that when the court do take the Mississippi case, 
that you really could see a majority for overturning Roe versus Wade? Because I know sometimes this is talked about and in the end, the court sort of swerves around the decision. Well, I do think that one of the big differences until now is that Chief Justice John Roberts has tried to position himself as an institutionalist. I think he has been tremendously successful at selling this image of himself as believing in the institution, when the reality, I will say, is that he has been, you know, when it comes to issues of democracy, such as voting rights or campaign finance or gerrymandering, he has ruled in lockstep in a 5-4 Republican um, bent fashion. Um, but there are other places where, for example, the Supreme Court last year heard a case on access to abortion, uh, and he ruled with the Democratic appointed judges. Um, however, now with a 6-3 Republican supermajority, just Chief Justice Roberts' um, vote is irrelevant now. Now the determination will be between up to Brett Kavanaugh as to whether or not the court will adhere to precedent or not. And so I don't know, like, will the court ever write the words we hereby overturn Roe versus Wade? Maybe not. Uh, but I do think that they're going to, it's very likely that they're going to completely gut that precedent and upend access to abortion uh, through this case. So let's think about what the fix or what the solution that your group and that you think would be right. If this is coming down the track, what then is the fix? Is it either A, to say there needs to be more judges, so you could appoint, say, four liberal judges and suddenly the six conservatives are outvoted by seven uh, liberal-minded judges, or is your group and your view arguing that uh, the better solution is that the Supreme Court shouldn't even get to decide these uh, hugely central issues in American life. What's the fix that you would propose for this problem that America now faces? So I think that there are a number of structural reforms that could help improve the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Um, but fundamentally, right now, we have to restore balance. This is a court that at a 6-3 supermajority is tilted too far in one side toward partisan political special interest. And the best way to restore balance and the way to do it most immediately and most clearly constitutionally is to add seats. I think one of the things that we don't always remember um, from our history, because we've all lived in the court, Supreme Court that only has had nine justices, uh, is it hasn't always been that way. And the Constitution doesn't require it. And in fact, Congress has changed the size of the Supreme Court seven times before. And so this is the opportunity for Congress to step in and restore balance by adding four seats to the court. And then we should also look at other necessary reforms. And, and and it's just, is it not a little bit convenient that you add exactly four, which would then give the Liberals not just parity, but a majority? They would have a one-seat victory margin, wouldn't they? There, it, there, is, uh, there is something to that. Uh, there's also something to sort of the historical symmetry that the last five times that Congress uh, expanded the size of the Supreme Court, it did it to match the size of the circuit court, sort of the level just below the Supreme Court, um, now has 13 circuits. And historically, when the Congress has chosen to expand the Supreme Court, it's increase the number of justices to match the number of circuits. And so there's some historical um, poetry here as well to have 13 justices at this time. And what about the worry that some have, which is, OK, you do this and it works while Joe Biden is president. And then 
if Democrats lose their wafer-thin, almost non-existent majority in the Senate, and there's a Republican president, you know, hey presto, that majority would then be wiped out because the Republicans will do exactly the same. And they'll say, we're now raising the number from 13 judges to 17, say, giving themselves the majority. And then Democrat comes in and makes it 21 judges. And then it's 25 when the Republican comes in. That, you know, the argument, that sort of ping pong uh, approach um, that people fear happens once you start meddling with the system, which has been the same since the middle of the 19th century. Well, I would say to that that, first of all, I don't think the system's been the same since the middle of the 19th century uh, because Mitch McConnell just changed the science of the Supreme Court to eight justices in 2016 before expanding it back to nine to to uh, lock in the conservative advantage in 2017. Right. I think we know that Republicans will do what it takes to wrest power back um, when they when they can. But that concern cannot be what stops Democrats from taking necessary action to preserve our democracy and to preserve voting rights and to sort of restore balance. But in a way, what you're saying there, Christopher, exactly confirms the worry, doesn't it? Because you're saying the Republicans will do whatever it takes to ensure their own power. So they will go up to 17 if you go up to 13. You'll be into an arms race of judicial appointments. So what I do think is necessary, so I think that, again, I think adding seats is the necessary first step because it can be done immediately. But then I think the next thing, as we talk about other reforms, is it could be paired with a reform like term limits. And if there were term limits attached to Supreme Court justices, then every president could appoint the same number of justices. Right. And then you wouldn't have this concern that you have right now about when Justice Ginsburg retires or when Justice Breyer retires. Each president gets the same number of justices. And then you don't need to expand the number of the Supreme Court justices when you have the opportunity. You simply need to win the presidency. One of the challenges here is that Democratic presidents, President Obama only got to appoint two justices in eight years. President Trump appointed three in four years. That's what's leading to this asymmetry that term limits could help resolve. So you would have it that every four years, just as a president's term expires, a certain number of judges, their term would expire and the new incoming president would get to appoint their replacements. Right. There's some term limit proposals would allow the each president to appoint two justices for each of their presidential four year terms, And that would provide some symmetry. And then it would also sort of take some of the political gamesmanship out of retirement. So those are the policy fixes that you and others are advocating. Let's just talk about the politics of this for a moment. Where do you think Joe Biden is on this? He did sound pretty lukewarm on the idea during uh, the campaign. He has now set up this 36-member commission to look into the whole question. Hard to read the appointments of commission. Sometimes it's a technique for kicking the can down the road. Sometimes it's a way of giving you bipartisan cover for something you actually want to do. What's your read of where Joe Biden is on this and what's likely to happen? Look, I think that President Biden has said for some time that he's not a fan of the idea of expanding the Supreme Court. I think that he's going to be forced to come around to it. Um, I will say, though, for now, I don't have a lot of faith in this commission. It is an unwieldy commission of 36 commissioners, sort of bipartisan, but but also like 
very people on this commission have outwardly said they oppose the idea of adding Supreme Court seats. Some of them are very Republican. They supported Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. They've made comments about access to abortion and LGBTQ equality that are very concerning. Um, and most importantly, this commission of 36 members has not been tasked to make recommendations. And so it's hard to see what it comes out with other than sort of another report that people can leaf through. But I think that we need to start progressives who care about the future of our Supreme Court need to start organizing now around the legislation to add seats to the Supreme Court. So you've made a powerful case there. I'm just trying to work out the politics of how the president moves from a commission, which, by the way, you've described it, sounds absolutely as if it is in the can-kicking business. How you get from that, where he's not—he's put in people who are even opposed to reform and said they're not going to make recommendations. How do you get from point A, that, to point B, where he actually does what you and other reformers would like to see him do, which is make really big radical changes and appoint more judges to, to the bench? Well, I don't think that the president here is going to be the leading indicator of of championing this movement for Supreme Court reform. Uh, but I think when you look at what this will entail, and fundamentally it entails passage of a, a law through Congress, we've come a very far way on this issue in which in the House of Representatives now, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, and the chairman of the court subcommittee, Hank Johnson, along with the vice chair of the court subcommittee, Mondaire Jones, sort of very big institutional players in this debate, they are the ones who have introduced this legislation to add four seats. And now coming behind them will be organizations like Demand Justice to sort of help build the grassroots movement of support for this. And I think we're going to build the momentum. We're going to build the infrastructure here so that regardless of what the commission does 180 days from now, let's look what the Supreme Court does a year from now. And then I think, the, unfortunately, I think the debate around Supreme Court expansion is going to look far different than it does today. What do you say, Christopher, to those who say the problem here isn't really the composition, although you've explained absolutely why the composition creates these sorts of outcomes, but the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court? And I touched on this earlier, but in other words, isn't the problem that these hugely uh, emotionally charged and almost morally charged issues, abortion, gun rights, free speech, are determined not by the votes of the people in elections, but instead by these nine or 13 or 17 hand-picked judges. In a democracy, shouldn't these big, these big questions not be settled by the courts, but rather by elected officials in uh, electoral contests? And so, you know, yes, you can talk about the, um, you know, the mechanics of how you choose the court, but maybe America's problem is that it defers and delegates all its hottest button issues, its hardest dilemmas to nine judges. I mean, I think one of the challenges here is that the courts, in their best sense, are meant to be a place to protect the rights of everybody. And so you would not necessarily want the civil rights of, of minority groups in this country to be subject to popular will, uh, because that may not be in line with the Constitution, that may not be in line with the values of equality and justice that this country is supposed to stand for. And so I do think that there are some questions about what is the appropriate jurisdiction of the court, but I also think that those, those questions would be 
could be solved by a court that, again, Republican presidents have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections, but I think they've appointed like 15 of the last 19 Supreme Court justices. Like there is a huge imbalance here about the court not functioning in a way that reflects the the democracy of our people and adding seats to restore balance and then having term limits to ensure that each president, successive president, can appoint the same number of justices, I think could bring the court more in line with with where the people are while still adhering to the overall principles of justice and equality for all. Here's something I've never understood, and perhaps you can help me with, which is the argument you've just made there should outrage progressives uh, in the United States, that they have more popular votes and yet they have appointed so many fewer uh, Supreme Court justices. And yet, in my own reporting of the United States, one thing has always struck me, it's Republican voters who are massively exercised about the Supreme Court nominating power of a president. It explains a big part of why they vote. A whole lot of Republicans who found Donald Trump repugnant in 2016 told me that they were nevertheless going to vote for him because they wanted a conservative picking Supreme Court judges. Yet you did not see the equivalent seriousness about the Supreme Court filling power of a president on the Democratic side of the aisle. You didn't meet Democratic voters saying, I can't stand Hillary, but it's so important that she gets to choose uh, to replace, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and others uh, if those vacancies arise. What explains this sort of intensity gap between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to the issue that you give your working life to, which is the business of the court? Well, I think some of it is complacency. Um, I think some of it is privilege, right? Like when the Supreme Court struck down uh, the key part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, that did not affect all Americans. It did not affect all Democrats equally. It had sort of a disproportionate impact on on black and brown voters. And so you may not understand just how extreme the Supreme Court is if it doesn't impact your life directly, right? In 2016, voters who said the Supreme Court was an important issue or very important voted for President Trump by a couple points. And to your point, a lot of people think that those voters are the reason why he won the presidency. Uh, in 2020, voters who thought the Supreme Court was at least an important issue uh, in their in their voting decision, they voted for Joe Biden by six points. And so we're starting to see this wave catch up where progressives now more fully understand what is actually at risk, what's being taken away and the impact the courts have on have on their everyday lives and really why they need to be voting, not just for the president, but also for the Senate um, in order to ensure that our courts are more aligned with justice and equality and the values that they hold dear. Well, that would be a fascinating shift. Um, Christopher Ken, we always ask our guests on the podcast a what else question. And the what else subject this week is something which actually is not wholly unrelated to what we've been talking about. And that is the question of adding. We've been talking about adding judges to the nine-member Supreme Court. Uh, this is about the question of adding states to the 50-state union that is the United States, and particularly the District of Columbia, where the capital, uh, Washington, is. There's this question about whether D.C. and the six or 700,000 people who live there should be uh, granted statehood. And, and this week, a whole lot of constitutional law experts and scholars have written a letter which says it is absolutely within uh, Congress's constitutional authority to do this. 
this. Uh, and some advocates are saying that could give the cause a big boost at a critical moment, particularly in terms of winning over those wavering or quite conservative Democrats whose votes would be needed. Uh, that would change everything because you'd suddenly have two extra senators uh, and and DC is seen to vote Democratic. What's your take on on DC statehood and particularly this new uh, scholarly letter and, and m- might that change the game you know my view is that this actually is all related this is all related to the idea of democracy reform whether it's campaign finance reform voting rights reform or ensuring that 700,000 people in the district of Columbia are represented in both the house and the senate but also to the extent that there is this uh, potential constitutional question and certainly you know put me on the side of the constitutional experts who believe that this is constitutional if congress does pass legislation to give dc's statehood and voting rights that will inevitably go to the supreme court to this 6-3 ultra-conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court. And so if we hope that these voting rights for these 700,000 largely African-Americans who live in the District of Columbia are going to stand the test of time, that is yet another reason why we need to restore balance to the Supreme Court to have a chance at that being upheld and really preserving our democracy. Christopher Kang, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on Politics Weekly Extra. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. And that is all from me for this week. Make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly as Heather Stewart and Sonia Soda discuss what Boris Johnson's former advisor turned critic Dominic Cummings had to say when giving evidence on lessons the government can learn from its handling of the pandemic. It's a good one. But for now, I say goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 